So they had a long 13-year relationship. And I think it was friendship. I think there were times when LaGuardia felt let down by Roosevelt, particularly when he didn't get his commission. I mean, he really thought Roosevelt would just commission him as a brigadier general, and he didn't. He was bitterly disappointed about that. And there were a couple of other disappointments. But, but, hi, my name is Terry Galway. I am the author of a new book about Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. The book is called I Never Did Like Politics, How Fiorello LaGuardia Became America's mm-hmm. Mayor and Why He Still Matters. It's a book that uh, my editor had been uh, hoping for uh, for years because she loves Fiorello LaGuardia. He's been dead since 1947, but there are still some New Yorkers who remember him fondly. There's still some Americans who remember Fiorello LaGuardia and all that he represented. Uh, he was a feisty, hard-driving, incorruptible politician. You know, may not sound familiar to, to a younger <laughs> generation. But, uh, of course, these days he's best known as an airport in Queens, uh, LaGuardia Airport, which is sometimes preceded by an adjective that I can't say on the radio or on a podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much, Terry. Terry uh, Galway's book, I Never Did Like Politics. Is that true? I mean, it seems that that was, well, Fiorello LaGuardia, in a sense, I would say, loved politics. He did. He did love politics. He was in politics for most of his life. He was first elected to Congress in 1916 after having failed in 1914. And then he was in elective office basically from that point on till he uh, stopped being mayor of New York in 1945. So that's a pretty long career. But he fashioned himself, as many politicians do today, as anything but a politician. Uh, In fact, in 1941, he was uh, reviewing his entry in a book called The Who's Who in the World. Uh, The Who's Who isn't what it used to be, but back in the day, if you were in Who's Who, you, you you had made it. And LaGuardia had made it by 1941. He was one of the most famous American, uh, Americans of any sort. So he was looking at his entry into Who's Who, and I think most people would have said, wow, I'm in Who's Who. Like, it doesn't get any mm-hmm. better than this. Well, the Guardian looked at it and saw that he was described as a politician. And he called the publisher of Who's Who and said, I am not allowing this entry into your book. And of course, they said, well, Mayor, what's the problem? And he said, you called me a politician. You have to change that to municipal officer, <laughs> which they did, <laughs> by the way. You know, yeah. and he constantly, um, he constantly made fun of other politicians, condemned other politicians. I mean, I don't think he was particularly popular with his colleagues. But at one point, I guess in 1943 or so, he was agitating to get a new job as a general in the United States Army. Remember, the United States would have been in World War II at that point. And he had been in World War I, and he wanted to get back into the military, even though, by the looks of him, he didn't look like he was ready for combat. But in his letter to the War Department, he said, I never did like politics. Right. So that was what she was trying to say. I need a career change. Terry Galway, our guest, was Politico's Albany editor. What is, tell us first, what is Politico and what does the Albany editor do? Well, the Politico is a digital news site. It was founded about 20 years ago, uh, 
sort of at the beginning of the digital revolution in uh, American journalism. Uh, It's sort of a two-tiered kind of news outlet. There, you can go on Politico.com, and this is not an advertisement. I'm not on the payroll anymore. Uh, but you go on Politico.com, and you'll see the results of you know various uh, fights on Capitol Hill and the presidential campaign and such, and you can click on it, and it's very good journalism. Then there's the other part of Politico, which, which I was involved in, which is coverage of either local politics and government or intense um, issue-specific uh, departments like, you know, food and drug and, and energy, those you have to pay for. And that's sort of what, that's the business model for Politico. So if you were to go on Politico New York, uh, you would see some free stories, but for the most part, it's a paid subscriber service. Uh, and when I was editor and I retired as editor in uh, July of 2022, but our job, we felt, was of it was to inform people who have a a vested interest in government. And and, I mean, the founders would say everybody has a vested interest in government, right? But we're talking about people with financial interest in in government, uh, people who really want to know the latest, you know, switch of policies and Mm -hmm. energy. And so, so that's, that's what we did. That's what Politico continues to do. And as the, Edit, the Albany editor at Politico, uh, my job was to supervise five reporters. It was, it was and remains, I believe, the largest Albany bureau uh, in the capital. Uh, and we just tried to stay on the cutting edge of covering politics and government, mostly for insiders, frankly. Although, you know, every now and again, we would put a story in front of the paywall that a more general interest reader might be interested in and any writing i did which was mostly of a historical nature you know comparing an issue today in albany to an issue that might have happened 100 years ago most of what i wrote uh, was uh, in front of the paywall so you can go on google and find my stories from politico for, okay. from 2015 to 2022 uh, terry galway also earned a phd in history and you've uh, uh, taught at several colleges down in the New York City area. So well-versed in uh, politics, and uh, the, the book is about Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, who was so interesting. I mean, I'd heard the name. I've been doing a little survey, talking to everybody I meet the past few days. You ever hear of uh, Mayor LaGuardia? Oh, yes, I've, I've heard of Mayor LaGuardia, but I don't, I don't think we know much about him. I didn't even know the obvious... Uh, contradictions or whatever you want to say, or the way he goes against the stereotype of a uh, a left-leaning uh, ethnic politician. He's of Italian origin, but he was born in the United States. How did that work out? Well, you're right. Uh, he he defied almost every stereotype. Um, he, w- he was one of a kind, which is why so many people still remember his name. I mean, they may not know specifically when he was mayor of New York. They may not know he was a congressman and a very famous congressman throughout the 1920s. I suppose, you know, the airport obviously keeps his memory alive. But I think, you know, New Yorkers and people who live, as I do, in New Jersey, but close to New York, where sort of New Yorkers in exile, 
Um, we know his hmm. name because he was such a one-of-a-kind politician. So to your point, yes, he was born in the United States of uh, immigrants. Uh, his parents were immigrants from Italy. Um, he was born in Greenwich Village. His father joined the United States Army as a musician. He was in a, a you know, in a band in, I think, the 11th Regiment of the U.S. Army. And uh, as a result, he then sort of became an Army brat, as he described himself, lived in South Dakota. He lived in upstate New York in the Adirondacks for a while. Uh, but, but his formative years were spent in Arizona, uh, which, you know, is sort of surprising because I think pe- when people think of LaGuardia, they think of this quintessential New Yorker. But uh, he, he said his, uh, his favorite time, his best time uh, as a child was spent uh, in Prescott, Arizona. So uh, his father uh, became sick uh, in, the, uh, in his training. Uh, he was going to be deployed to Cuba in the Spanish-American War, but he became sick. Uh, he was discharged honorably, uh, and he decided that maybe it would be better for the family to move back to Italy, which they did. And uh, that actually was a common experience for Italian immigrants. Uh, they, they actually, many of them, particularly young men, were, were migrants in, in, the, in, the, in that sense of the word. They came to the United States, they worked for a while, then they went back mm-hmm. to Italy, and then maybe they went back to the United States, which I think was, I, I'm not a historian of all immigrants, uh, immigrations, but, but I do think that that Italian experience of back and forth was, was fairly unique to the Italian experience. Uh, that certainly was not true of the Irish and certainly not true of the Jews, which were the two other big immigrant groups yes. of LaGuardia. Yeah, you, you and I talked about that before, uh, you know, when we were setting up the interview. I mean, I even recall that, because I come from a upstate New York City, which had a lot of the quote-unquote traditional ethnic groups. And let me just name two. We had a lot of Italians and a lot of Polish immigrants, seems to me the Poles basically came to Amsterdam and stayed. But a lot of the Italians came to Amsterdam, New York, and did this, that, and the other thing. But if they didn't like it or something happened, they would go back to Italy. Yes, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Italian-Americans didn't achieve political power as, as quickly as, say, the Irish did. Of course, the Irish spoke spoke English, most of them, uh, and Italians didn't, so the, and the, the Irish were here first. But think about it. Fiorello LaGuardia was the first Italian-American member of Congress. He was elected in 1916, and Italians had been here for a while. He, he sort of became this quintessential Italian-American politician throughout the 30s and 40s, uh, and Italians did not have a whole lot of political power at that time, even in New York. So I suspect that one of the reasons for that is because because Italian migrants were so transitory, I think that uh, the Irish-dominated political machines in New York and Boston and other places didn't go out of their way to try to register Italians because they, well, they, they didn't become U.S. citizens, uh, and they were, you know, they were not rooted here as opposed to the Russian Jews who came here in the 1880s, and you know they stayed. And, you know, by the early 20th century, uh, Tammany uh, was actively uh, courting the Jewish vote in New York City. They were not courting the Italian vote. And Mm -hmm. and there's a reason for that, and you put your finger on it. Yeah. Now, also, uh, LaGuardia is against stereotype. He was not Roman Catholic, right? 
He was not. His father uh, was baptized a Catholic, but he uh, professed to be an atheist. So he sort of rejected his Catholicism. His mother was Jewish uh, and somewhat of a practicing Jew, but I think maybe more cultural than religious. But he was brought up as an Episcopalian, sort of, you know, the religion of, of uh, the religion of, of Anglo-American elites. Uh, I, I should think that the name of Fiorella LaGuardia uh, would have been unusual in an Episcopalian church at that time. I don't know if there is a parallel or makes any difference, but as you probably know, having worked in Albany, that it's longtime mayor, and he was uh, elected by an Irish machine in Albany, he was actually uh, an Episcopalian, too, you know, kind of of English origin and a, and a wealthy man. Right. right. That was arrest this morning. Yes, of course. Right. And I don't know that LaGuardia was a particularly religious man. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm quite sure that he, that he was not. Uh, but one thing is interesting is that uh, he... Early on and early and early on and often uh, was a critic of Adolf Hitler, which you know to 21st century ears might sound well. No kidding, who wasn't? Well, not everybody. Not in 1933. Not not throughout the 30s. It was Winston Churchill in Britain who was sounding the alarm, saying, "Okay, Hitler has basically told us what he's going to do. We have to assume he's going to do it," which of course he did. LaGuardia was basically saying the same thing. Although in perhaps rougher language, uh, he was sounding the alarm of Hitler almost from the moment that Hitler became chancellor in Germany. And, and in particular, which I don't think was true of Churchill, but uh, he was particularly warning of what might happen to Germany's Jews and, Euro- and European Jews if Hitler were allowed to do what he said he would do. So he mm-hmm. was a Critic and and people basically asked him, well, are, you know, are you saying this because your mother was Jewish? And he said, no, I don't consider myself to be Jewish. You know, if I were Jewish, I would be proud of it. I'm saying this as a human being, which is mm. much, which is really powerful. And Fiorello LaGuardia was not a Democrat. No, he was not. <laughs> I, I think. I think some Republicans at the time might have quibbled with your statement. <laughs> he was he was a liberal Republican. I mean, clearly. Uh, and um, that was one of the reasons why he was so isolated when he was a member of Congress, because, um, you know, the 1920s were a fairly conservative time in the United States. They were a very prosperous time. Uh, everybody was having a good old time until they weren't in 1929. Uh, but uh, LaGuardia was very much opposed to the economic policies of her of um, Warren Harding and then Calvin Coolidge and then Herbert Hoover. Uh, he felt that basically that these policies were uh, too favorable to the wealthy and not, you know, not uh, empathetic enough to his constituents who were, you know, sort of working class and poor uh, people of immigrant stock uh, in Manhattan. Uh, so uh, he was, by any stretch of the imagination, he was a liberal Republican to the point where his most valuable ally in the United States was Franklin Roosevelt, of course, a Democrat. Well, um, yeah, and what was his relationship with Roosevelt? I mean, it appears that they were close, but I get the impression from some of the things you've written that uh, yeah, maybe, maybe not so close. 
Well, you know, I think it depends on it was a it was a long friendship, uh, and I do think it was a friendship. I mean, it, 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 uh, Roosevelt is elected in '32 as president. LaGuardia is elected mayor in '33, and you know, obviously Roosevelt serves until '45 uh, when he dies. Uh, LaGuardia serves until the end of 1945, so they had a long, you know, 13 year relationship. And I think it was friendship. I think there were times when LaGuardia felt let down by Roosevelt, particularly when he didn't get his commission. I mean, he really thought Roosevelt would just commission him as a brigadier general. And and he didn't. He was bitterly disappointed about that. Uh, and there were a couple of other disappointments. But, but when the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, was basically the driving engine of the American economy, one out of every seven WPA dollars was spent in New York City. And, you know, Fiorello LaGuardia basically got a chance to rebuild New York City as a result of largesse from Franklin Roosevelt. And Roosevelt sort of defended LaGuardia when the State Department was out of sorts because LaGuardia was criticizing Hitler so much. In fact, at one point, uh, LaGuardia's criticisms of Hitler were so vehement that the German government protested, and the, U- the State Department apologized to Hitler's <laughs> government for LaGuardia. And Roosevelt himself said, you know what, we should have given him a medal. So it, it, it was an interesting relationship, but one that benefited both of them, because Roosevelt was able to say, look, I've got a Republican, a Republican ally in New York. And LaGuardia was able to say to his Democratic city, yes, I'm a Republican, Look at who my best friend is, Franklin Roosevelt. Mm. So it, it worked for both of them. Yeah, and uh, he was first in line, I would say, or uh, to, to get the largesse, such as it was, from the New Deal because of this close tie with uh, with FDR and the fact that uh, FDR is basically from the New York City area. He knows what it's like. So the economic fortune of uh, New York City uh, benefited from that. Yes, despite the fact that uh, LaGuardia employed Robert Moses, whose name would be familiar to most listeners, uh, particularly downstate. I think his impact was probably, except for the parks upstate, which he certainly was a big part of, but downstate, he basically was the master builder of, of the new New York and also of Long Island. And Roosevelt hated Moses. And Moses hated uh, hated Roosevelt back going back to a rivalry they had in the 1920s when Al Smith was governor, and yeah, Roosevelt knew that most of this WPA money was going to projects that Robert Moses designed, uh, and I think he chafed at that. In fact, uh, at the opening of the Triborough Bridge, uh, which was a WPA project, there was mm-hmm. great you know, sort of discomfort between Roosevelt administration officials and Moses, who, I mean, Moses basically built the bridge. So uh, LaGuardia had to negotiate that. There were a few times when Roosevelt's people made it clear like they were not happy that Moses was so important in LaGuardia's administration. And LaGuardia basically says, look, I'm not happy either, (laughs) but he can get the job done. Fiorello LaGuardia, why is he called the little flower? Fiorello in Italian, and I don't speak Italian. I tried when I was in Italy. Um, didn't really work. Uh, but Fiorello in Italian means little flower. So oh, it does. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he that's could play. 
that's the extent of my Italian. Uh, molto bene, uh, that too, I suppose. But <laughs> yeah. So he, he he could draw upon his Italian ethnic uh, heritage for some, uh, you know, political a, if you will, or to to, to make a point. But uh, what did other Italians think of him? He was beloved in the Italian community, uh, in part because he was the first. Right, and, and he and he literally spoke their language. In fact, he spoke five languages, which is astonishing. You know, he could campaign in Man- he could campaign in his multicultural district in Manhattan, speaking English to one group, Italian to another, Yiddish to another. And if he was speaking to a Croatian community, which may not have been as big as the others, but he could speak Croatian as well. I think I forget the other language. It might have been German. Uh, he was a linguist. Um, so uh, Italians loved him, uh, and I think they loved him too because it's astonishing uh, to, when you read my book uh, to see the bigotry that LaGuardia had to endure from other members of Congress, from his colleagues, Irish colleagues, in, um, in city government. Uh, not maybe when he was mayor, because <laughs> mm-hmm. not himself the mayor, but when he was a mere congressman, he was president of the board of aldermen. Uh, he was generally he was publicly called some of the nasty names that Italian Americans perhaps are still called. So I think it, you know the Italian community knew that LaGuardia was uh, you know put had to put up with this sort of bigotry and threw it back in other people's faces, and I think they liked that a lot. You were right that uh, he was a patriot, a dissenter, a leader, and a statesman. How do we get all of those things into one man? Uh, it's, you have to have a very large personality, and he certainly did. <laughs> yeah, that's how I organized the book. I mean, there, there are many biographers, uh, many biographies of LaGuardia out there. I won't mention them because I prefer people read my book. Uh, so what I did was I organized his life according to those four themes. So it's not a chronological story of LaGuardia's life. It's, it's organized by themes. He was a patriot. I mean, he was a member of Congress when World War I broke out. He voted in favor of the war resolution in 1917. And then he immediately uh, volunteers to serve in the, I think they called it the Army Signal Corps. It wasn't called the Air Force or the Army Air Corps. It was a you know, very primitive uh, beginnings of of our modern air force he had taken some lessons as a pilot so he went to the recruiting station and said hi i want to be a pilot and the person looks at and said are you congressman laguardia and he said yeah so anyway he volunteers he he's you know he puts his life on the line he flies combat missions over italy uh which italy was fighting on the allied side in world war one uh he he loved America. You know, he gives he gives speeches on occasions like the Fourth of July and Flag Day, and other uh, occasions where he you know waxes eloquent about what it's like to be an American. But he was a dissenter too. He uh, he opposed um, phony patriotism. Like for example, there was a, a, a bill in New York that would have required uh, the flag to be flown at meetings over 15 people or some such thing. And he said, no, you can't force patriotism. He vetoed it. You can't force patriotism. Patriotism has to come from, from within. Mm-hmm. 
but he but as i said he was a he was a, a remarkable dissenter in the 1920s uh when he felt the United States had become too materialistic and and had tilted towards the wealthy. So when he opposed something, oh boy, did he oppose something. So he dissented in that regard. He obviously was a leader, uh, and we saw that during his three terms as mayor of New York. Um, and he was a statesman. Uh, he uh, stood up for the Jews throughout his career. Uh, he he stopped a he stopped a big project that Henry Ford wanted to do in the South, which was like none of his business in a way. But he said, "No, we can't let an anti-Semite take over these public resources in the South." And he succeeded. Um, and af- after he was mayor for for a year and a half, which is basically the last year and a half of his life, he served as the head of the United Nations Refugee Administration, in which he was basically feeding and housing. Europe's refugees, of which, of course, there were many, including his own sister, who was living in Europe during the war years. So uh, his career, his personality, and his qualities certainly take in all four of those traits that I identified. All right. So and he was also a leader and a statesman. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Well, I mean, as mayor, he says, uh, from his very first day, uh, he uh, he needed to get a budget passed. Uh, will sound familiar to anybody in Albany. Uh, he needed well, he wanted to make a lot of uh, budget cuts, uh, and he needed Albany's approval because anybody who knows Albany knows that the mayor of New York always thinks he or she has power, and then they go up to Albany and they find out, oh right, <laughs> it's Albany right. that has the power. Uh, so LaGuardia wanted to uh, impose these pretty draconian budget cuts. Remember, he takes office in 1934. He's elected in 33, takes office in 34 at the depths of the Depression. Uh, And the city council or the Board of Aldermen uh, are appalled because LaGuardia is cutting into their patronage. So the president of the Board of Aldermen says to the mayor or says within the mayor's earshot, uh, no, you know, we have to vote on this. You know, this... uh, there's many opinions that have to be considered. And LaGuardia's reply, and I'm paraphrasing here, LaGuardia's reply was, in this administration, I'm the only vote that matters. (laughs) Which which actually wasn't true, but it gave you an idea of of the fact that he had a vision for what the kind of New York that he wanted. He wanted to clear slums. He did. He built public housing. The first mayor in a large... American city to embark on a public housing project, some of it funded by the WPA. Uh, he, at one point, because he was a pilot, uh, there's a story in the book I tell where he was flying from Chicago and he landed in Newark, which even today uh, people think of as, okay, I'm flying to New York. Where are you landing? You're landing in Newark. Oh, that's New Jersey, by the way. So his ticket said Chicago to New York. He the plane lands at Newark Airport, uh, and he refuses to get off the plane. Like everybody's getting off the plane, and LaGuardia says, "I'm not getting off the plane." And they have to bring the manager of the airport over. And basically, he said, "I want to be flown to New York." So he was flown to Floyd Bennett Field, which still exists in Queens. But the point is, is that there was no airport in New York, and he realized that if New York was going to continue to be a major city, just as during the time of the Erie Canal, the Erie Canal made New York what it 
was and railroads made New York what it was. Well, we need New York needed to have an airport. And so we basically, by force of will, demanded that uh, New York build an airport, and they did in record time. It was the largest WPA project of its time. It was built in something like 18 months. I mean, something incredible. Um, and, of course, that's the airport that we now know of as LaGuardia Airport. But it yeah. was his vision to say, we, we can't let Newark, <laughs> with all, and Newark, I mean, I live near Newark, uh, with all deference to Newark, we can't let Newark become the major hub of air traffic. Uh, in you know the eastern United States, so that's why we have LaGuardia Airport. You can donate funds uh, to our GoFundMe campaign. Send a check to me, made up to Bob Cudmore, to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Terry Galway is author of I Never Did Like Politics, How Fiorello LaGuardia Became America's Mayor, why He Still Matters. The book is published by St. Martin's Press. The Historian's Podcast is produced by Dave Green, and I'm Bob Cudmore.